this represents something of a new frontier. The brain as perhaps, as I've called it, the new battlescape of the 21st century. We don't view these as weapons of mass destruction, per se. These are more weapons of mass disruption. Hi, and welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI. And for this episode, I spoke to Dr. James Giordano. He is a professor at Georgetown University, where he is the chief of the Neuroethics Studies Program and scholar in residence in the Pellegrino Center for Clinical Bioethics. I arranged to speak with Dr. Giordano after a presentation he gave at a recent conference organized and hosted by the U.S. Army's Mad Scientist Initiative, a program within the Army's Training and Doctrine Command. His talk at that conference sort of overlaid the fields of neuroscience and technology on that of military operations. He talked about some groundbreaking advancements in neuroscience and technology, what their military applications are or might be, and also what ethical implications these developments and their applications bring forth. It was a fascinating presentation, and I had the privilege of sitting down with him to talk further and record a conversation for our listeners. Just a few quick things before we get to that. First, I want to thank the Mad Scientist Initiative for making it possible to speak to Dr. Giordano. If you're interested in what they do, I would highly recommend following the program on Twitter. They're at ArmyMadSci. And of course, hopefully you're also following MWI on Twitter. We're at War Institute and on Facebook and LinkedIn. And lastly, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of any agency of the U.S. government. All right, enjoy the podcast. Dr. James Giordano, uh, thanks very much for, for joining us and having this conversation. I want to I, I wanna start, uh, I just heard a presentation that you gave at this conference hosted by Tradoc Mad Scientist, in which you talked about neuroscience and technology. One of the things that struck me and I think struck a lot of people in the audience was when you just sort of gave a sense of the scope of uh, this, you really shaped it as kind of a growth industry and I think it surprised some people. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that, uh, not exclusively, but with some context in terms of sort of military applications of some of this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a good question because it also helps to frame not only the field, but the applicability of the field to operations in the military sphere. And those operations range from pure military medicine, which is certainly the silo for which much of brain science has been developed, but also other uses within the military. And of course, here now we're actually looking at dual-use neuroscience, both within the military and beyond. Neuroscience as a titular field called neuroscience is relatively new. It essentially was formed in the 1970s as a coalescence of a variety of other fields that were studying the structure and function of nervous systems. These are classic life sciences and natural sciences. So for example, biology, physiology, anatomy, pharmacology and chemistry. And then increasingly the field broadened and broadened, recognizing that chemistry and biochemistry became reliant upon physics. But the questions that these, these fields were looking to address were equally philosophical questions. So you then got the conjoinment of fields such as the philosophy of mind, um, philosophical and cognitive psychology. And these began coming together in a more cohesive method and orientation that by the middle 1970s was being colloquially referred to as the neural sciences. In fact, the working textbook that many of us used was developed by the subsequently Nobel laureate 
um, Eric Kandel, and it was called Principles of Neural Science. In its first edition, it was co-edited by uh, Dr. James Schwartz. And the idea of a neural science, where you took a variety of these sciences in a directed and intentional approach towards the studies and then perhaps interventions in the nervous system in the brain, really gained some traction. And so that by the late 1970s, this was then called neuroscience. By the end of the 1970s, to grab that time frame, what you essentially saw was about four or five major programs in neuroscience, titular neuroscience. And to give you a frame of reference with regard to the rather explosive growth of the field that I think also communicates its momentum to date, we now have literally hundreds of programs in the neuroscience. Academic programs, uh, yes, universities. Sir. Academic programs at universities, and not just limited to large university research infrastructures, but also at colleges, at four-year colleges. We have high school programs in neurosciences and a number of freestanding institutes and think tanks that are explicitly directed towards the study and support of the brain sciences and neuroscience. So what you see is that just here in the United States, that growth has been expansive and extensive. Now you have to couple that with the fact that neuroscience is not an exclusively American enterprise, nor is it exclusively a Western enterprise. And increasingly, specifically since the late 1990s and 2000s, there has been great intent and devotion of time, effort, and funding internationally to create large-scale agenda and initiatives in the brain sciences. And certainly this has occurred in Europe, and it has occurred also in Asia, and increasingly it's also occurring now in South America. So what you see is a, an iterative globalization of the neurosciences. In some ways that's new, because this has really been titular and focal to, quote, neuroscience. And in other ways, it really reflects the long-standing engagement of these academic pursuits in the natural and life sciences, physical sciences, and the humanities that has been long a tradition of European academic uh, institutions and, and orientation. But I think there's an additional point that becomes very, very important for us to make here, is that neurosciences per se are also not a singular discipline. And that's becoming ever more relevant as we look at the things that neurosciences can do and the way the neurosciences are leveraged. If we look at neurosciences, they really span the gamut from things that happen on the cellular level to looking at studies, understandings, and interventions that strive to engage on the social level. We like to say it goes from the synapse, the connection between nerve cells, to social groups. Mm -hmm. And that's quite true. So what the neuroscience has afforded us the capability to do is to bring together other dimensions of science both natural and physical sciences, as well as the social sciences, together with the humanities, and then interface those in such a way that allows this very, very broad span of assessment, inquiry, and potential interventions that run the gamut from things that can occur on the cellular level, highly biological, to things that occur on the psychosocial level, and are therefore able to understand and interact, in some cases, affect both individuals and groups, inclusive of populations. There's a lot of power that can be leveraged there. You have a book on neuroscience and national security. You traced kind of the origins of, of, of it as an academic discipline, an area of study back to the 70s. When did national security implications start to come into the discussion? Well, you know, we could be a little colloquial and think a little congenial about that as well and say that, you know, people have always been interested in the things that can go bang in your head. Sure. I mean, the idea of a head wound, whether it's hitting somebody over the head with a club or putting an arrow through their head or hitting them in between the eyes with a bullet, the idea of utilizing some access to the brain mm. and what it does 
as a viable weapon that can be used in some form of warfare, or military and warfare operations, combative, pugilistic, and, and sort of bellicose operations, has been part of human history. But like anything else, the more sophisticated the science and the technology, the greater the import and power of the tool. And what we see is that an understanding of brain science, going from the early studies of behavior to psychology to then being able to utilize chemistry and drugs, has really been pretty much tantamount to the transition that we saw going from the 19th century into the 20th century. I, like many others, like to refer to the 20th century as the century of technology. It built very strongly on these centuries of science. If we take a look at the latter part of the 18th century and the 19th century, for sure, we see a, a large bow wave, if you will, of scientific discovery that concatenated a whole bunch of different disciplines growing out of the 1700s through the 1800s. Certainly medicine was one of those. But as we move into the 20th century, what we're really beginning to see is the industrialization, technologization, and scientific import of these different disciplines in the concentrated effort of warfare, mechanized warfare, scientific warfare, harnessing these disciplines in such a way as to create both improved performance of soldiers as well as the ability to develop weapons as means of contending against others. So we're beginning to see that, that interest again in the 20th century really becoming uh, actualized, concretized. Now we have the brain sciences, and as I said, the brain sciences really matured throughout the 20th century. And as you get into the area of the latter part of the 20th century, let's take a look at 1950 onward, there became a real interest in harnessing the brain as a potential tool that could then be employed, utilized, and engaged in military operations. A host of military operations, intelligence operations, warfare operations, even humanitarian military operations. The idea was simple. The more we understand about the brain, the greater the ability to access the brain, the greater we may be able to develop viable targets to therefore affect, which is a nice way of saying control and manipulate the mm -hmm. brain. One can take a look, for example, at the rise of pharmacology as a science in the early part of the 1900s and recognize how important pharmacology was to warfighter performance during the early and latter part of the Second World War. Characterized, I think, and typified by much of the efforts that occurred in Hitler's Germany, for mm -hmm. example, with the use of stimulant drugs. Sure. As we moved into the 1950s, the idea really became how can we access the brain and therefore affect its functions, inclusive of things like consciousness, cognition, emotion, and behavior. If we take our vista and we bring it a little closer to home, we now begin to see the development of key programs that are occurring here in the United States. Probably one of, one of the most famous or infamous is the MK Ultra experiments that were conducted by the United States Army, looking at how various drugs, most notably the psychedelics, would affect military performance, not only of our own troops, but perhaps mm -hmm. of others who may be enemies. These were notorious because the science was still fledgling science and the methodology was still fledgling. I think a very, very good review of those early years of using brain science to begin to investigate how the mind might be accessed for military purposes is in the book Mind Wars, written by my colleague, Professor Jonathan Moreno of University of Pennsylvania. Great book, provides a, a nice historicity of the way brain sciences have been engaged and utilized, some of the successes and some of the failures. And what it really does is it sets the stage for what began to develop as the science became more mature and more sophisticated. Moreno does a wonderful job in tracing that literally right to present. Uh, the most recent edition of that book appeared in 2012. 
And what Dr. Moreno has illustrated quite well is that the use of the brain sciences for military purposes in large-scale agenda of national security, intelligence, and defense is indeed iterative and progressive. That said, the question then becomes, what can we do with the brain sciences, number one? Given that, what should we do with the brain sciences, number two? And number three, knowing what we should do, can we actually do these things? And what does that really mean as the brain sciences are recognized for the capability that we're beginning to really expand and the various uses that we then begin to see unfold before us as we learn more and more about the brain? So I think a, a catalytic point in understanding where the brain sciences are relative to their capability in national security, intelligence, and defense agenda came in the early part of the 2000s. By 2003, 2004, it became fairly apparent to a number of people in the federal government that the brain sciences were indeed a viable, quote, big stick that could be yielded to affect military operator performance on both sides of the proverbial trench line, ours as well as theirs, means of making our people more efficient, more effective, and optimized, and in those ways being agents and actors to contend against others who may be potential enemies, and of course using them directly as what we would call more frank weapons as contending against those others, changing their capability or will to fight, for example, or in some cases influencing their behaviors so that they then go back to their respective communities and then lead a whole host of potential followers in ways that are more amenable to our influence or, or others. But by 2008, there was a, a National Academies report that was specifically dedicated to examining the possible use of the neural and cognitive sciences in military operations. And the conclusion that was drawn was, yeah, these things are pretty potent and pretty capable, but they're not really ready for prime time. Remember, the year is important here, 2008. I think what's important to understand is that the nature of that report was a, about a five to 10 year retrospective survey that looked at the progression of the brain sciences and what tools and techniques were available to date at that time, in the 2007-2008 timeframe with the actual release of the document in 2008. Subsequent to that, in the United Kingdom, the Nuffield Council of Bioethics did a deep dive in emerging neurotechnologies, and one of the areas they were very keen to explore is the possibility of, quote, dual use. The use of neurosciences that were originally developed for biomedical purposes, but that could be uptaken into other agenda. And of course, dual use connotatively means military use. And there was an explicit chapter devoted to the viable use of neuroscience and neurotechnologies for national security and international security intelligence and defense. And their conclusion was a little more salient with regard to the ready for prime time issue. They said there are many of these techniques and technologies that are at the research and development and transition phase to be translated into operational use. And they targeted some of these. We can think of these technologies in two basic domains, those that are used to assess brain structure and function, and those that are used interventionally to affect brain structure and function. And the Nuffield Council report examined these and said, you know, on both sides, the assessment neuroscientific and technological tools and the interventional neuroscientific and technological tools, both have key components that are ready for translation into the operational space. Remember that year, 2012-2013. By 2013 and 2014, a reconvening of the National Academy's specific research council looking at viable use of neuroscience and technologies and neurocognitive technologies in the military space reached a very different conclusion. Now it was very evident that this represented a very clear 
and very present toolkit that could be operationalized in a number of different dimensions and domains that were key to focal operations within the military. So this was really a four to six year span of time that charted, if you will, the pace and scope of neuroscientific and neurotechnological development. Let me explain what I mean. In the past, oh, 30, 40 years ago, one could chart scientific and technological development in about 10 to 20 year jumps, leaps, taking a concept and working that concept through to have some type of construct, either mm -hmm. a tool or a technique, took about 10 to 20 years. The development of convergent sciences, where you de-silo many of these scientific approaches, methods, labs, tools, have allowed a much more cohesive and unified approach that then identify key problems and seek key solutions in a much shorter or compressed period of time. I think if we look, for example, to the time course that's used by the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, DARPA, it's reflective of that compression of concept to construct time, 60 calendar months, five yeah. years. So now we're not looking at something that's more decadal in its orientation for growth. We're looking at something that's compressed to half of that, a five-year orientation to say what is the concept, what is the problem, and can, in fact, we translate a concept into a construct and solve that problem or maximize some solution or some advancement of development within five years so as to then create something that's operational within a five to ten year span. That's an important reduction. So where we stand now, 2017, 2018, is we're looking at that five to ten year time span as something that realizes the potential of what neuroscience can do. And that is certainly the case for the military, national security, intelligence, and defense space. You mentioned uh, the National Academy report in 2008. You said that that year was, was key. Uh, it struck a chord with me. I spent the year 2008 deployed uh, in Baghdad as, at the time as a psychological operations officer. Uh, when we think of PSYOP, um, ultimately, you, you, you used a bunch of, uh, several buzzwords that, come, that we have that appear in our doctrine. It's um, changing target audience behaviors um, doctrinally by identifying vulnerabilities, leveraging those vulnerabilities in order to affect some, some behavioral change. Uh, we were sort of at the center of the campaign to win hearts and minds, but winning hearts and minds was much broader than PSYOP. That was, it was, it was a, a central component to our counterinsurgency doctrine. And as you talk, I'm sort of struck by the fact that what we meant when we said win hearts and minds in 2008 we might be entering an area where you, where you win it in a very different sense. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. In fact, there was a series of papers that we wrote. Um, I had taken leave of absence from Georgetown from 2008 to 2012 and had the honor and pleasure of serving at a, a D.C.-based think tank called the Potomac Institute for mm -hmm. Policy Studies. And at that time, was tasked with heading up, which is a relatively new center called the Center for Neurotechnology Studies. And one of the things we were looking at is neurotechnology futures. And one of the projects we were engaged in is how neurotechnology futures could then be employed and utilized within the military operational space. So we convened a conference that had been funded by uh, the Bureau of Medicine and Surgery and by the Office of Naval Research to essentially look at how neuroscience and neurocognitive sciences could be used in what we call the NSID, National Security Intelligence and Defense Operational mm -hmm. Space. What's ready for prime time, what isn't? And we brought some thought leaders together and coming out of that, essentially there were two things. Number one, a special thematic issue of a journal that we had developed at the Potomac Institute, which was called Synesis, 
and then coming from that, a more expanded volume that ultimately grew into the book that you're referring to, which is my edited volume, Neurotechnology and National Security and Defense. And what we found at that time was exactly what, what you're saying, is that these constructs that were axiomatic to a whole host of military operations, particularly those that were in some way reliant upon the interface between biology and the psychosocial engagement. So in other words, human terrain teams, PSYOPs, mm -hmm. MISO, and also various forms of intelligence operations that were highly reliant upon understanding what makes human behavior human behavior. What are the biological and cognitive underpinnings that are both reflective of human behaviors and can we then look at human behaviors and try to understand the brain, thereby influencing the brain and changing those thoughts and behaviors. Let me use that as the hinge pin. Let me say that again. Can we look at these behaviors and understand the cognitions and emotions that are important to their generation, their sustenance, and their execution? And by understanding those behaviors and by understanding the brain, can we then say that by affecting these psychological and cognitive constructs, we're affecting brains that way, or vice versa? We can affect brains in particular ways and know that by changing brain function in these ways, downstream we can affect these tokens of their cognitions, psychological patterns, and ultimately behaviors. So to key on the axiom that you put forth about affecting hearts and minds, the adage changed somewhat with the advent of translatable neuroscience. And as we said in our papers, and ultimately also said in the chapters of our book, the goal now becomes affecting brains so that we can change minds and hearts. By affecting the mind, so to speak, you can actually perhaps change the heart, the intentionality, the direction, the behaviors of that individual who then becomes the target of those operations. So instead of uh, focusing on a narrative that's going to resonate uh, based on somebody's sort of cognitive uh, psychological construct, the paradigm through which they're going to accept these, uh, these narratives, you can sort of impact that paradigm itself. Exactly. And in, indeed, that was the actual focus, the purpose, the aim, the intent, and I think the execution of a, of a very good DARPA program, which was called Narrative Networks, uh, originally called Neural Narratives. The, the program manager is Dr. William Casebeer. Dr. Casebeer is now at Lockheed Martin. But as the, the program manager for that particular project, what Dr. Casebeer, a cognitive scientist and philosopher himself, was looking to do is to create a viable program utilizing a, a host of different approaches, some that are uniquely neurobiological in focus to try to understand better how brains work, whether engaged in particular cognitive operations or being susceptible to a variety of environmental, ecological, and psychosocial cues, and also understand how a variety of cognitions, emotions, and behaviors were A, reflective of brain processes, and B, could affect brain processes. So the reciprocity of brain structures and functions to those outputs of what would then be executable in the operational space was indeed the focus of this Narrative Networks program that sought to be able to understand how brains work so as to get a better idea of how individuals function and then target those functions and target those brains for such things as psychological and, and, and meso Mm -hmm. um, engagements. And we continue to do that kind of work. As we had mentioned at, at the TRADOC conference yesterday, and as I mentioned in a number of my talks, I've had the great pleasure and honor of serving with a, a group of neurocognitive scientists and behavioral scientists as part of the strategic multi-layer assessment group that serves the joint staff of the Pentagon. And working with my colleagues, uh, a number of colleagues, and I'm happy to mention them by name, of course, Dr. Bill Casebeer, Dr. Jason Spitaletta, Dr. Nicholas Wright, Dr. Diane Deulis, 
all who are involved in different aspects of neural and cognitive sciences to focus on how these sciences could be harnessed and best employed and utilized within the national intelligence, security, and defense space. And clearly more and more what we're seeing is that the utility, the validity, the viability, and therefore the value of these approaches is gaining momentum within military operations. And the importance of that would suggest that there's a lot more things that are going on in neuroscientific laboratories on both the civilian and the military side that pique the interest of potential military, national security, defense operators, not only here in the United States, but worldwide. In other words, the field is becoming more valid with regard to its techniques and its approaches, both of neurological assessment and intervention. It's becoming more viable with regard to translating these laboratory approaches into operational use, and therefore the value quotient increases. When the value quotient increases, the reach in to the neuroscientific community becomes greater. And this has prompted particular concerns on the research and academic side with regard to how various techniques and technologies mm -hmm. of neuroscientific research may be either directly, indirectly, or duly used, and certainly on the civilian side as well. But those issues do not escape individuals on the military side either who are equally concerned that this represents something of a new frontier. The brain as perhaps, as I've called it, the new battlescape of the 21st century. And this raises the specter of considerable concern. As I like to say, what we can do is certainly provocative and I think very tangible. What we should do and if we should do it and how it should be done and who may be doing these things, who may be using them or even misusing these approaches, well, that's contentious. Uh, to try to bring this down to the level of an 11 Bravo infantry soldier on patrol, can you give an example or two of ways in which neuroscience and technology can either equip him with uh, capabilities that are going to make his job easier or impact and, and sort of shape the, a task at hand? Say you're told you have to clear a building, you're unsure about non-combatant presence, but you know there's, uh, there's enemy fighters in there. Can, uh, or, or another example, can you talk about how this is going to or could potentially you know, in the next generation, change the daily experiences of a combat soldier? Sure. I don't think we have to go to the next generation. I think clearly it's far more proximate than that. And I'm actually going to play a little bit here with, with, with your verbiage. Uh, not that in any way you did it by intent, but I'm going I'm I'm to toy with that for a little bit. I think it's not just a question of what, that, what he thinks, but also it, it helps us to understand how he and she think. Mm -hmm. Clearly, we're seeing a more diverse military population that is indeed populated by both male and female troops. And understanding what male and female brains have in common and what male and female brains have that are dissimilar is also important to how we engage certain forms of military education, training, and operations. Trying to say that everything fits to a homogeneous standard, well, we, we realize that's not the case anymore. Now, there are a lot of things that male and female brains have in common, but there are also some subtle differences. Moreover, we understand that you know, not all brains are indeed the same and that there may indeed be clads or typologies of brain structures and brain functions. So the idea is by better understanding the brain can we better educate and train the mind that then is embodied in that particular military operator, whether it's an intelligence operator, an individual who is working the field, as you say, an infantry type, a deck sailor, an aviator, a submariner, a SEAL, whatever. The idea is to understand the nuances of the mission. 
and then try to understand what neurological mechanisms are involved in key performance aspects and metrics of that mission, key tasks that would be involved, and what are the neurological inputs to the performance of those tasks, both cognitively as well as behaviorally. And under the cognitive umbrella, I'm also including here emotions. And then looking at what neurological mechanisms, networks in the brain, for example, are involved, to what extent, and then are these in some way modifiable? Well, now we get into the whole idea of how do we engage the brain so as to be able to affect the mind, thoughts, and actions of either the combat warfighter or some other form of military personnel who's going to be uh, an operative agent in executing some aspect of the military mission. And this has not gone ignored. I think there is a considerable ongoing discourse about the idea of performance optimization mm -hmm. and harnessing the tools of the brain sciences for that. Let me give you an example, I think, because your, your listeners might be interested in like, okay, great, what do you got in your, in your toolkit, so to speak? Well, I think the easiest way to do that would be through drugs. Again, this is nothing new. We've been experimenting with a variety of drugs since we first realized that the adage of better living through chemistry is something we can harness, whether it's drugs that we derive from our various nutritional aspects and foods or things that we create or some combination of both. And I think we're still dealing with the combination of both. But where the sophistication is derived is that the more we learn about the brain on a variety of levels, and here once again we're going from the precellular, the synaptic level, all the way up to the sort of gross systemic level of the brain, and understanding that the brain exists in a body, and that bodily physiology is important, the more we're then able to understand how drugs work, and instead of utilizing and developing drugs as more of a buckshot tool, we're trying to develop far more sharpshooting drugs that work at particular nodes and networks of the brain with a higher level of specificity, with a decreased level of side effects. On the civilian side as well as on the military side, there's been considerable discussion about certain forms of stimulant agent and certain forms of drugs that are called nootropics that may then increase vigilance or cognitive capability. These are also gaining some attention in the military. But drugs can be, quote, dirty. In other words, any drug is going to have certain side effects. And we really can't make sure that a drug acts only at one place in the brain unless we deliver it very specifically there by something that lives in the brain, an implant, for example. Well, now we're saying we're going to use implants. But let's examine that for a moment. Before we use implants to start to deliver drugs, do we even have to implant anything in the brain? Or could we simply affect brain tissue externally? The answer to that is yes. And we're looking at two discrete, although not unrelated forms of transcranial stimulation, we call non-invasive brain stimulation, that may have some promise in being able to alter various forms of neurological function, and in so doing optimize certain aspects of key performance on tasks that are vital to military operations. One is transcranial electrical stimulation, and there's a lot of work being done at the Air Force Office of Research and the Air Force Research Laboratories looking at what's called transcranial electrical stim. One of the major forms is something called transcranial direct current stimulation to be able to increase vigilance, decrease fatigue, improve task performance on a variety of cognitive and discriminative tasks, for example, being able to parse signal from noise when looking at various photographs or listening to various forms of auditory input, improve performance on a variety of mechanical tests such as shooting, articulating some device like a vehicle, a waterborne, landborne, or airborne vehicle, even flying a UAV. 
However, what we recognize is we don't understand the full mechanism of those types of things, transcranial electrical stimulation. And again, the current that's being used is very mild. And what tends to happen is you need a repetitive form of, of administration. So we've also looked at something that's a little more potent and a little bit more direct, and that's called transcranial magnetic stimulation. And in some cases, we're looking at a combination of both. And can these particular techniques be used either singularly or in combination? in a single dosing or in repetitive dosing, and what type of pattern of dosing do we need to be able to then engage these types of neurological effects to then induce and sustain key effects and key results with regard to cognitive and motoric performance enablement. And we're seeing some of this. If we push the envelope a little more, now we're thinking, well, the problem with any of these transcranial approaches is exactly that. You've got a lot of sort of geography you have to get through. You have to get through mm -hmm. scalp and bone, and then you have to get into the brain. And realistically, we're not quite sure how deep into the actual brain tissue some of these magnetic or electrical pulses and currents can go. But we do recognize from the medical side of the house that there's another set of techniques that can prove to be very, very valuable and highly useful. And that is deep brain stimulation. Now, that is exactly as the name would belie. I'm taking electrodes, I'm drilling a hole in your skull, and I'm dropping electrodes into your head. And if I had had this conversation with you and we had entertained our listeners with this discourse about five years ago, this discourse would be clearly limited to the neurosurgical and therapeutic environment. However, conversations that have been held in the public space by people such as Elon Musk mm -hmm. that would suggest within an X period of time into the future, we're all going to have, quote, chips in our head, the idea of Neuralink and Neuralace, I think is ambitious at best and a little fictional at worst. But it's grounded on the reality of two things. Number one, that these implantable techniques indeed work and can be used for a lot of things by affecting some of the circuitry in the brain specifically, targeting them specifically in a very precise and particular way. We can alter the way the brain functions, not only locally within key networks in the brain, but globally, the entirety of the brain, and how that functions in a whole host of things, thought, emotion, actions. And these things can be controlled and directed. That's certainly not new. That's a rather old technique that we had used in animals, but we've now advanced to humans, again, primarily in the medical sphere. But we're branching out the, that silo. We're expanding the walls of those silos. What type of medical sphere? At first, these were only used to treat neurodegenerative movement disorders, and then impulse control disorders, and then certain forms of chronic pain. And now, we're looking at a much broader palette of potential applications, including a host of psychiatric conditions and disorders. And of course, the idea there is could we also modify individuals' thought patterns, emotions, capabilities, and their behaviors? And the answer there is yes. So the first is that we're moving from the medical silo into a broader sphere of potential applications. The second is that the sophistication of the actual hardware is getting better and better and better. And third is that the sophistication and ease of implantation is also, I think, on a very, very rapid trajectory towards improvement. So what we're seeing is that it need not necessarily be the intensive neurosurgical theater that is necessary to implant these but the use of novel delivery tools and novel development of new types of implants that are far more flexible, easier to embed, easier to control, I think then adds this sort of third dimension that is ease of delivery, ease of administration, that then therefore makes us far more facile 
as a usable technique. So as much as there might be a pucker factor that's involved here mm -hmm. and someone saying you're going to give people brain implants, I think that the, the open media discourse about a chip in everybody's head to make them more capable, more capabilized to increase their potential and the possibilities of what they can do certainly has not escaped the, the visage of how these could then be used in a variety of different occupational settings, inclusive of those occupational settings that exist within the military. So we're seeing an ex expanding toolkit. And I think that what that toolkit then illustrates for us is that the capability to be able to alter individuals' neurological functions so as to then in some way affect their performance on key tasks is an iterative reality. And it's something that we have the capability to do now. And those capabilities are only going to increase, become more precise, become more specific. And in so doing, we're going to learn what the risks are, what the burdens are, what the benefits are. And like any other experimental approach that's being oriented towards some translation, we're going to work to decrease the burdens, risks, and harms, and increase and maximize the potential benefits. A caveat here, my benefits might not necessarily be seen as benefits by someone else. Sure. We also have to consider what is the durability and sustainability of those benefits as the technology changes. This is brand new technology. We're learning more about the brain and about the technology as a consequence of doing this. So here, once again, we see that there are indeed ethical legal issues that arise with regard to not only the effectiveness of this, but the sustained effectiveness of this, the safety of this, and the implications on the individual for whom these devices are being used with regard to what is the meaning of those devices, how do those individuals, quote, feel, how will they be regarded, and what happens if, in fact, they're no longer involved in that community, what will we do mm. with their optimizations? Will we de-optimize them? Will we explant the devices? And what will those individuals feel? Will they feel now that they are disenabled? Will we consider that to be a disability, a disorder? Who will care for them? What does that mean? So again, by moving forward, what we're really doing is we're untangling, if you will, the, the Gordian knot of what may be our understanding and our capability to affect the brain. But in untangling that knot, we're also perhaps opening a bit of a can of worms that we have to deal with. I think often when we talk about scientific or technological developments that will increase or optimize human performance, we think of sort of game changers. We think of humans and exoskeletons able to jump 40 feet and do things. We t you know, some of the stuff you're talking about clearly you know, if you're listening to this conversation, you're thinking about really big developments. But I'm also thinking about um, some of the smaller things. We, we have another podcast that's called The Spear, and it's a series of one-on-one -on -one interviews with people about the combat experience, where they walk us through one very particular thing that happened. We have an upcoming episode with a guy uh, who was targeted by a suicide bomber, and he recalls what that was like. We have another one that we just released um, with a guy who was talking about two missions that he was a part of in 2003, the beginning of uh, OIF-1, the invasion of Iraq. When I told him I'd like to record this with him, he was struggling to remember a lot of details. He was lucky he found his green notebook that lots of Army officers carry around uh, and f f that he carried with him during that deployment and found notes. As he was going through the notes, he remembered more and more. It wasn't that everything was written on there or that it was written on there, so therefore he must have believed it, but it triggered something. So there are latent memories, there are things that are there, and of course there are um, you know, quite famous examples of people misremembering things from a period when they're under stress. And, and you think about times when there's an enemy contact and they come and, and soldiers come back and they're debriefed, uh, and you ask them questions about you know, what patch was 
was this guy wearing? And those memories might be in there. Those, those you know, that it, it may have made an, sort of an impression uh, in the person's memory, but they're not able to recall that. And this seems like potentially there's scope for things like that to become uh, processes like that to be optimized, a debrief process, which obviously has uh, other implications for interrogation and, and things as well. Um, but I wonder if I wonder if just kind of big picture when you when you think about this stuff, are you thinking more about those big game changes? Are you thinking about the ways that this will subtly um, but importantly impact the way that the military operates on a day to day basis? Yes. Yeah. Both. And I think that they're inextricable. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think what you tend to get is a, 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 what's called a sigma development effect. So if you, you, you add uh, in both uh, a directly additive way and perhaps a synergistic way, these smaller achievements and smaller developments, which you end up seeing is after X period of time, again, let's work within a 6220 calendar month period of time, you've made significant headway in progress so that the overall net effect of these smaller developments is that the whole is greater than the sum of mm -hmm. those parts. Then you also have certain things that are really quantum changers with regard to either our understanding of the brain or our capability to in some way access, affect, and modify the brain and its functions. And so I think these two things are working in tandem. Sometimes it's a lot of those little things that provide the foundation upon which individuals, laboratories, or research writ large can stand, if you will, the sort of Newtonian idea that if I've seen farther, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. Mm -hmm. And so I think that some of the, those smaller developments, those iterative developments, provide that. The, these are, in fact, pediments, stepping stones, upon which a major development can then occur, either on the assessment side or the interventional side. And that's a major game changer. But I think each and all of them have game-changing capability, depending on also the extent of their use and, and how they're then leveraged, once again, to, to use that word repeatedly, in the operational environment. Let me speak to a point that you made. I think identifying the fact that just the operational environment itself can, in a variety of ways, affect the brain and its functions has not gone unnoticed, inclusive to a number of organizations that directly interface with defense operations, inclusive of the medical military operations. Here, what I'm thinking of is some of the activities of the Office of Naval Research, BUMED, and more specifically, some of the work that has come out of the Air Force and DARPA. If we look at some of the Air Force programs, these are directly involved with neurological engagement so as to protect the brain and optimize its function. And these have been very, very important in creating some of the ideas of how we can use these new techniques and technologies in both ways that are therapeutic as well as in ways that are preventive. And we get into ways that are preventive, we then immediately go over into the idea, can we also optimize as a prevention? Because optimization then renders an individual a little less susceptible towards deleterious effects. In other words, the more optimized I am, perhaps the better I can perform. On the DARPA side of the house, there's a, a number of programs that have come out of the Human Brain Initiative, the, the Brain Research Through Advancing Innovative Neurotechnology Initiative. And the one that comes to mind specifically, to, to speak to your point, is one that is called Restoring Active Memory, RAM, and another which is called RAM Replay. The former utilizes exceedingly high-tech means to be able to create neural prosthetics and utilize interventional and non-invasive brain stimulation to be able to restore active memory in individuals for whom memory is in some way impaired or in some cases actually abolished. Individuals have brain injury, a variety of different traumatic forms as well as pathologic forms that are incurred through things like stroke or degenerative neurological disease like the dementias. But clearly the military application is quite high because here we're also looking at individuals who had TBI. RAM replay 
on the other hand, is not only high-tech, but it's a heterogeneous approach that utilizes both high-tech and low-tech approaches to both sustaining active memory and looking to restore active memory in individuals whose memory function need to be sustained and optimized over X period of time and whose memory capability would then need to be restored following some event, a traumatic insult, a psychological event, some combination of both. And RAM replay is specifically oriented towards a military operational sphere, both on the military medical side of the house as well as a military performance side of the house. Much more explicit, for example, than RAM that clearly had a much broader both dual and reverse dual use operational scenario and translation. So I think what we're understanding is there are a lot of brain functions that are highly relevant to, important to, and influential to national intelligence, security, and defense operations and the operator. Let's not forget these are persons we're talking about. And these represent viable targets, and I'm using that in a, non, a, a non-deleterious way, targets of, quote, opportunity. But, you know, targets of opportunity and what opportunity means when using this in, in the, the context of military warfare, intelligence, security, and defense operations can incur a whole host of potential both denotations and connotations. The opportunity here, as we discussed earlier, is not only to optimize, enable, and enhance the function of our guys and our women, so as to make them essentially better agents and actors in the conduct of those tasks that are inherent to their their military jobs. But if I'm then going to engage in sort of a larger perspective of what militaries do, militaries are indeed political operational devices that are important for maintaining relative balances of power. And in this case, we're now looking at the sciences, any one of the sciences and technologies, I don't care what it is, as weaponizable potential tools. Now we're looking at the idea of neuroscience as a weapon, or what is sometimes referred to as a Mm neuroweapon. That's anything that accesses the brain and its functions to contend against others. Again, to reiterate, I can do that by making me better and making me more resilient, more responsive, and perhaps more effective in an environment of dealing with others. Or I can in some way change others' cognitions, emotions, and behaviors that, in so doing, alters either their volatility to a host of environments, environmental precepts, prompts, their vulnerability, their aggressiveness, their violence, their will or capability to fight. And so here we see a more traditional weaponization. And in those arenas, what we're really looking at is the ability of neuroscience to create what we like to refer to as drugs bugs, toxins, and tools. Drugs are just as you would expect, a variety of drugs that can be used against others to either mitigate their capability or their will to fight or to be aggressive. These drugs may also be used, for example, to make them more amenable to disclosing information and therefore could be utilized in interrogation situations. We may also take a look at those drugs that change their behaviors and literally render them incapable of engaging in fighting behaviors and combative behaviors. We could look at a variety of microbial agents, and here we're looking at things like bacteria as well as viruses. And I must tell you, the window of opportunity expands here somewhat because of some of the newer techniques that are now being made commercially available. The one that comes to mind that is probably most salient are the gene editing techniques and, of course, the exemplars CRISPR-Cas9. It allows me to modify the genetics of a variety of organisms 
and the smaller the organism, a single cell organism, perhaps the easier. But here what I can then do is I can modify bacteria and or viruses and in that way change some aspect of their pathogenicity, make their morbidity higher, perhaps make their mortality higher, make them more viable in a variety of different circumstances, take certain agents that were, for example, not necessarily pathogenic and make them pathogenic by changing their genetics. And the other thing I can do is I can also change certain toxins. I can make certain toxins more or less morbid-inducing, more or less lethal. And of course, what I can also then do is I can take a variety of organic toxins and I can couple that to new techniques of chemistry, specifically certain things that may utilize nanochemistry and nanopharmaceutics. And I may be able to create toxins that now I can assemble on site within a body at very, very low doses that are highly selective, but key targets in the nervous system to be able to deliver a very, very potent and often lethal effect with compounds that then will dissociate after they have gained their effect and therefore are essentially untraceable and unrecoverable. Uh -huh. So the selectivity of things that I can do with this new armamentarium and toolkit is much higher. And so if we take a look at the idea of drugs, bugs, and toxins, a lot of things we can do. The other thing I think I should let you know, and, and also inform your, your listening audience, is that we don't view these as weapons of mass destruction, per se. Yeah, look, absolutely, we can take certain neuroactive chemicals. For example, I think the one that comes to mind most notably is sarin, mm -hmm. and other forms of neurotoxic gases and neuroactive agents, and we can weaponize them more crudely, and in some cases have delivered at a high enough dose with a high enough volume, they can be a relative mass destructive effect but they lose their capability that way. They, they gain a particular crudeness. These are more weapons of mass disruption, mm -hmm. where now what we're doing is we're targeting sentinel and salient individuals who may be either power-based or charismatic leaders to then influence their people in a ripple effect, or to target key individuals or groups of individuals within a particular population to then create a disruptive ripple effect that creates individuals who are sick, and by those individuals getting sick, what I then do is I then take attribution over the internet and say it was a terrorist act. I create dissonances between aspects of the population and the public health strata. And in those ways, I disrupt the fiduciary, the, the, the trusting relationship that exists between the polis and the body politic, between the polis and the government, between the polis and a variety of organizations. I create a disruptive ripple effect one need only look back at the events post 9-11 with sure. regard to some of the anthrax or pseudo-anthrax attacks that occurred to recognize the amount of disruption that I can incur. I don't want to use the word panic per se, but I think what you can do is you can create a pretty widespread effect by the amount of misinformation that you spread via the internet and a whole host of other media to then create a much amplified effect. You may be getting some morbidity, you may be getting people sick or maybe even killing some people with this. But the ripple effect becomes highly disruptive, and it is a psychological, social, and economic ripple effect that is then both executable in a short wars as well as long war scenario. So what we're seeing is that neuroscience in these ways can be used either by nation states or by non-state actors, or in some cases what we worry about is the do-it-yourself, quote, biohacker who ordinarily would not have any capricious or nefarious means or intent but may be vulnerable to external corruption from manipulation, influence, and direction, and in such a way may inadvertently then be manipulated to create these types of things, 
or in some cases may actually have an agenda of their own. They may not represent anything that has a political ideology per se. They may be relatively agnostic in their orientation, but as a consequence, they can then let loose into the public sphere those things that really may impact in a very negative way public health and public safety. And last, but certainly not least, and although I think something that's gaining increasing attention, are a host of neurological devices. So, you know, we talked about drugs, bugs, toxins, and the last one is tools. And these are the interventional forms of neurotechnologies that can be used with great effect against individuals as well as against groups. For example, we may find that now various forms of transcranial electrical and magnetic stimulation, when used against key individuals, might be able to disrupt their cognitive, emotional, and behavioral functions. Granted, the caveat here is I need to sit these people down and put electrodes on their head or put them into a situation where they're exposed to a magnetic pulse. But I think that the form shrink shrinkage that is occurring with some of these technologies, in other words, literally being able to shrink these technologies to make their technical phenotypes more available for, quote, field use, mm -hmm. also increases their viability for a variety of different uses in the national security, intelligence, defense, and, and warfare spheres. So again, like anything else, the more tangible something is to be used in the field, the more tactical it becomes, and the more that tactical use can be leveraged in a strategic environment. And again, within the device range, you also th see things that are far more crude. For example, sensory hyperstimulating devices, particular spectrum of pulse light, sure. noise, odor, um, electromagnetic pulses that create sort of a vibratory sensation that people find very, very disruptive. But the more we understand about nervous systems and more we understand about the technology, the higher the fidelity, the higher the granularity, and the higher the impact of effect we're going to be able to generate with regard to the outcomes that we then occur on the nervous system and on the individuals who have that nervous system. So here what we're seeing is a broadening of our potential palette of weaponizable brain sciences and its technologies that can be translated into the operational sphere at present and in the near future. I've, I've got a long list of follow-up questions that I keep uh, keep running down, but I've already taken up uh, more of your time than I promised. But I want to touch on um, something that you alluded to. I don't think we use the word ethics yet, um, but I want to talk a little bit about that in terms of navigating uh, cultural norms, um, professional codes, um, a really, really a sort of a, a, a sense of ethics. And what strikes me as interesting in thinking about this is if you're talking about weapon, weaponizing scientific developments and technologies, uh, I don't think in the past uh, those responsible uh, for building bigger and better and more accurate artillery pieces or those responsible for innovating in terms of black powder and creating smokeless powder thought necessarily it was their responsibility to be at the forefront of also developing the sort of ethical constraints on which its use might be. But it seems to me that the people who are involved, yourself and others who are involved in sort of thinking these things through, do feel bound to um, at least be involved in the discussion about the ethical uh, limits on their applications. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that you've raised a couple of very important points, and, and I think what it becomes critical for the, the listener to understand is that technology, although we'd like to think is neutral, is not. You get a builder's bias. We build things for a purpose. Mm. And what can very easily happen is that builder's bias is either communicated and sustained that this thing can only be used that way, 
or what will tend to happen is it becomes far more fractal. I build it to do something well, and I realize that that may then have a diversity of purposes. I may or not be able to control those purposes. The running joke I like to use is that, you know, the people who build chainsaws recognize you're supposed to cut down trees to them. There's always going to be some idiot who decides they're going to juggle them. <laughs> and of course, the idea there is this is sort of letting the cat out of the proverbial bag. And I think in some cases, what, what stance is advocated is a very frank and very simple precautionary principle. If, in fact, we recognize the cat has claws, has teeth, and may be able to scratch or poop all over the furniture and the rug, don't let the cat out of the bag. But I think very often what tends to happen is the utility and value of letting the cat out of the bag because of the apparent goods that that cat will render. It's cute. It purrs. It's soft. It cuddles on my lap. Creates something of a myopia. And I think the other issue is that we tend to fall victim to something that I've referred to as Icarus folly. We may be getting the advice about how to build the wings and what it takes to build good wings, so to speak, if we go to the Icarus Daedalus sort of myth. We may also be getting advice that we shouldn't fly too high because the higher you go, the closer you get to the sun and the more labile those wings become. But, you know, we think we know enough to be able to say, I'm not going to heed that advice, or, or I nod somewhat knowingly and I default to my own hubris and go, I got it covered. I think I know enough. And then I begin to en enjoy the view as I fly ever higher, and it feels warmer and warmer as I get to the sun, and I realize I'm getting higher and higher than everybody else, and I like the positional stance and power that it gives me. Next thing I know, I'm tumbling through space. What have I fallen victim to? The technology? No, hubris. Mm. So I think what's necessary here is that reflective pause. Are there a lot of things that we can do? Yes, there are. Are there a lot of things that we can't? Being able to discern that difference, I think, is important. And what I mean by that is being able to determine there are certain things that we can really do with these neurological techniques and technologies, and there are certain things that are simply incapable of doing. Don't amplify what we can do. Don't extract meaning where there is no meaning, particularly from these assessment neurotechnologies. And understand there's an awful lot of things that we can't do with them yet, and don't use them inaptly or misuse them intentionally. But I also think that we recognize that there's a lot of things that can be done, and there's great power in being able to affect those things. And as a consequence, the, the viability of using these techniques and technologies in these various theaters of operations is exceedingly attractive. Moreover, I think that there's also a very strong pulling force here. Let me explain what I mean. You've alluded to that. We've talked about it a bit. This is not a, a unitary approach to the science and technology. And what I mean by that, this is not just one group doing it that's claiming hegemony. More and more, the brain sciences are, in fact, an international event and enterprise. And I think what tends to happen is there may be, as my colleague Robert McCrate is fond of saying, a bit of brinkmanship that can go on. And I certainly think that is indeed the case. And very often, um, a, a pregnant pause in one group will then become an opportunistic window mm. for another. Now, obviously, there are extant conventions that provide at least some level of restrictive governance and guidance as to what can be done and what can't with regard to dual-use research of concern. And not only dual-use research of concern, which is something that we are very much involved with my group and, and the group that I work with, the European Union Human Brain Project, but, you know, research is fairly easy to control and regulate because you're working within the infrastructures characteristically of academic laboratories. And those things that you, you, you then proscribe 
no, you can't do this as an academic lab. You can't use these things. You can't develop certain things that are going to go into military use. It can always be uptaken by military laboratories directly. You lose the control there. What military laboratories choose to do with regard to their directions have key interest for an intentional use of military operations. Okay. That's called directed use. But when you're actually talking about the way these things are used in practice, not the research, but the operational use, your status post research, development, and test, and now you're into the evaluative and employment stage, it's a little more difficult to regulate. Yes, there are biological toxin and weapons conventions. There are chemical weapons conventions. There's Declaration of Helsinki and a variety of other non-binding, non-necessarily legal international treaties that are signatory. But even here, the retributive power is minimal. Not every country that signs also ratifies. Not every country signs. And the other issue is there's a lot of ways to sort of sidestep some of these treaties by saying we're doing these things in the medical silo. Mm -hmm. And the spillover from the medical silo into other silos, inclusive of military silos of operational employment and use, is increasingly high. Moreover, if you're working within an infrastructure, a national infrastructure, that allows a relative seamlessness between governmental intent and agenda and academic and commercial intent agenda and outputs, then the flow between what the government needs science and technology to develop to be able to then divert or shuttle key devices, techniques, and technologies between one silo and the other, the academic sphere, the commercial sphere, and the military sphere, becomes relatively facile. Third point is something we alluded to before. Uh, and I think that the issue here is, is a fundamental one. Almost every country postures itself towards the possibility of warfare to defend what they think is right or what is good. And so the question then becomes, if in fact I'm defining good in one way and you're defining good in another way, does my good then substantiate and justify my engagement of research, development, and use of these techniques and technologies so as to be able to uphold my ideologies, my values, and my politics. Hey, thanks for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, just a quick reminder that we recently launched a second podcast you might be interested in. It's called The Spear, and it's all about the combat experience. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again.